Well, all right. Welcome to Struggles of Jacob. We are currently live on Facebook as well as Zoom and on our Dresha Live website. Um, well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. We're, you're here for the Struggles of Jacob with Rabbi Silver. It's good to see if, if you're watching on Zoom, it's good to see your face. Please feel free to turn your camera on and mute yourself unless you're asking questions. Um, Rabbi Silver will be stopping periodically to ask questions in. And so if you are following along on Facebook Live or Zoom, feel free to drop them in the chat and I will bring them to his attention. If you are on Zoom, you are strongly encouraged to use the wave hand icon to catch my attention when Rabbi Silver stops. And good morning, Rabbi. Good morning, Rabbi Silver. Okay, good morning to everybody or wherever one may be. I'm in Israel myself. Um, okay, we're in. Uh, the story of actually in the midst of, so Yaakov is going to leave the house of Lavan, having worked there for 20 years. Um, he had an arrangement with Lavan. He had intended to leave after 14 years, but there was an, Lavan made him an offer to, to refuse. And Yaakov uh, has manipulated, according to the end of chapter 30, manipulates the flocks of Lavan to secure for himself, first of all, many animals, many more than expected, and not only many more than expected, but on top of that, the Torah says at the end of chapter 30 that the, the stronger, the better of the animals, Torah calls them kishurim, the stronger ones were for Yaakov, and the weaker ones, the atufim, are for Lavan. So Yaakov has outwitted Lavan, secured for himself a sizable uh, flock, has become a very wealthy person, that's the last pasuk of chapter 30. Uh, one can raise the questions as to whether he, this manipulation is 100% uh, kosher or not. Uh, one can certainly say that Lovin gets whatever he deserves. On the other hand, what does it say about Yaakov and the manipulation that he has done to secure his fortune? That's the description in chapter 30, without getting into all the details of it. And in chapter 31, we have a different account, actually, in chapter 31 of the way in which Yaakov has secured this uh, fortune, this clock. So in chapter 31, and we'll come back to some of the details shortly, but simply to point out that chapter 31 put, begins by telling us, as we saw last time, that Yaakov hears Lavan's sons. We didn't know until this point that Lavan has sons. Uh, actually, we knew when Lavan went into the flock and separated the speckled and the spotted and gave them to his sons. That's in chapter 30. Now, Yaakov, he is the, that's the first time we heard that he has sons. And now in chapter 31, we are told that Yaakov hears these sons of Lavan speaking, saying that Yaakov has made his fortune from our father. He has taken from our father. Well, Kach Yaakov, as chapter 31, verse number one. So they're angry that Yaakov, from their perspective, has taken what belongs to Lavan. One might say by extension, taken what someday will belong to them, since they are the sons who presumably will inherit Lavan. That's as far as the sons. As far as Lavan himself is concerned, which is the second verse, Yaakov sees Lavan's face, by Yaakov Lavan, so Lavan doesn't speak, but Yaakov detects, Yaakov understands. He looks at Lavan 
he sees his face and he realizes that their relationship has changed and presumably not for the better. And in that context, Yaakov hears, we are told that God speaks to Yaakov. By Yomer Hashem O Yaakov, Shuvo Eretz Avotecha, Umoradetecha, Ve'yet Imach. God says to Yaakov, Shuv is a command, go back, return to the land of your fathers, place of your birth, place of your um, habitation, and I will be with you. And we remember actually that back in chapter 28, when Yaakov had his dream and God spoke to Yaakov in the dream, God said to Yaakov, in chapter 28, and behold, I am with you. I am, I am with you. I will be with you. And then God added in chapter 28, I will protect you. I'll guard you. I will bring you back. So this verse relates to the earlier verse before Yaakov leaves. The promise was, I will bring you back. And here we have God commanding Yaakov, in fact, to go back. We ourselves will return to the word return, because the word return is a very, very important word in this story and in the book of Breshit in general, as we will see. Meanwhile, in the next pasuk, which is number four, we're told that Yaakov sends for, calls for his wives. He calls Rachel and Leah, he summons them, calls them, to the field where his flock was. So we have this visual image of Yaakov standing surrounded by his flock, the sheep, the lambs, the, the, um, the goats. And in this setting, you can visualize it, he talks to Rachel and Leah. By the way, it's interesting that Rachel, we know what Rachel is. Rachel is a ewe, which is a young sheep, a lamb. That's Rachel a young female sheep called lamb. What does the name Leah mean? Because the biblical names have meanings. So what does Leah mean? Here there are two possibilities and both could be true. We know in biblical Hebrew, uh, the word Leah or Leut, these words mean weakness or weariness. So when we first, when we meet Leah, her name is Leah. Her eyes are rakot, some say weak. And of course, but Rachel was very beautiful. And one has the impression when we then that one is a rather frail woman, weary and frail. The other is robust. And of course, to our surprise, of course, the frail and the weary one is the one that produces all the children. Whereas the other one, who presumably is the opposite, she's not Leah, she's the Rachel, she's the Akara who can't give birth. So another, the Torah is always full of the unexpected surprises. In any event, he summons them. He had this picture of, that's one meaning of Leah. It turns out that uh, what was proposed by many, is that the word Leah is related to a word in one of the languages of the ancient Near East that is uh, correlates with one of the words of the ancient Near East, 
which Leah means a, uh, a uh, cow. If it means a cow, and the two daughters are lamb and cow, or sheep and cow, sounds like a restaurant or something, but, and here's a picture of these sheep and the cow, founded by the flock of animals, which is actually very interesting. I think it sort of reifies or strengthens this whole question about commodity versus personhood, business versus family, which is one of the primary themes of the entire story of Lavan and Yaakov living in Lavan's house. And he spoke to them, he was his wife, to leave with him. So he tells the story. And here's the story that Yaakov tells. First he says, As far as your father's concerned, he says, I see your father's face, he's not with me anymore. Things have changed. But the vav here is the disjunctive, but the God of my father has been with me. And of course, the reader remembers what God said to Yaakov in chapter 28, I will be with you. So Yaakov says on one hand, your father, notice the contrast in the word father, your father is not with me. The God of my father is with me. That's how he starts. Now he continues, the Ateno Yidaten, and you know, that I served your father with all of my might. It's interesting that he says, you know, because the expression, you know, is what he uses twice when he speaks to Laban after 14 years and says to Laban, who had said to Jacob, you want you to stay because I've divined that ever since you've been here, I've done well. And Yaakov says to Laban, you know that it's not, you don't need divination for that. You know how hard I worked. And it's not an accident. I made you rich. You know. And that expression appears twice there and here also. We are telling you that 10. And I mentioned that, maybe we come back to this, because the question of who knows and when one knows and what one knows, that's a very important question. We remember when Jacob first leaves home and has the dream and sees the angels ascending and descending, he wakes up, he's very frightened. Behold, he says, this is the gateway to heaven. No, I didn't know. So our story begins with Jacob saying, I did not know. And the question, of course, is, will Jacob know and what will he know and when will he know? But meanwhile, he knows what other people know. He knows they know. You know, he says to them. I was a very faithful laborer. I served your father with all of my strength. But by contrast, but your father mocked me, let's scroll down. But your father mocked me. He changed my wages 10 times. You have to scroll down. And God did not permit him to do harm to me. So it's what God said in the beginning, I'm going to put you. And Yaakov says, and he changed my wages 10 times. Now, in point of fact, the question is, did he change his wages 10 times or didn't he change his wages 10 times? We have no evidence. We know he's a crook that we know. We know he changed Yaakov's wages the first time. But did he change Yaakov's wages subsequent to that? So the answer is, I think, 
that when Yaakov speaks over here, the number 10 may be an exaggeration, it's what the Rashbam says, but it's probably essentially true. And the reason we think it's true is because later in the chapter, Yaakov will confront Laban and accuse Laban. And he says to Laban himself, towards the end of chapter 31, that you changed my wages 10 times. So Yaakov says that to Laban directly, not just to Rachel and Leah. Since he says it directly, your father is a cheat, changing my wages time and time again. He interested time and time again, literally 10 times. It is probably true. The Torah didn't bother telling us this, but the Torah essentially in reading this verse, that this, in which the story in which Yaakov is tricked in Rachel and Leah's case was not a one-time affair as far as Laban is concerned. That's the way he does business. And now Yaakov continues. And I think we can assume what Yaakov says is true. Because later on, he says it directly to Laban. And here he says, Im yomar, he would say thus, if he said, here they translate speckled. I'll get back to the word nikudim a little bit later. If let's go with their translation. If he said the speckled will be your wages, then all the flocks would produce speckled young. If he would say what here they translate streaks, the street ones would be your wages. This is a new, a new piece of a new piece of information we didn't know, but that's what he says. And I think if you look at the Yaakov speech later, I think we can assume what he says is true. God has taken away your father's livestock and given it to me. That's the first part. And now. We'll get back to all this momentarily, but let's just read a couple more verses. Now we tell, Yaakov tells us about a dream. This dream did not appear earlier in the text. And again, one can raise the question, and I think it, one can raise any questions, but one can certainly ask, did this ever happen? Or is he simply making it up? My own view is that it happened, and the view of the classical commentaries, of course, is that it took place. I'll get back to that later. We have no evidence of it, of it happening earlier. But here he says he had a dream. The time of the mating of the fox. I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream. And behold, the he goats were mating with the flock. They were streaked, speckled. Here they translate mottled. The word brudim. I'll come back to all of these things. And in the dream, the angel said, Jacob, Yaakov, and I said, Hineni, here I am. And the angel continues to speak. Got to scroll down. The angel says, let's read the verse. Um, the next verse is. Behold, notice, the he-goats which are mating, streaked, speckled, and mottled, have noted all that Ravan has done to you. And then the angel continues to speak, I'm the God of Beitel, I'm the God of Beitel, where you took your vow, 
when you anointed this pillar, you made a vow to me to Ata, you promised to build a house. Get up from this land to shuv, again the word return, This is the dream that Yaakov has related. Now, let us stop here and think about the dream. Well, one question one could ask is, is this true? In fact, did this dream ever take place? Because it, it certainly is at variance with what we read in the previous chapter. The previous chapter, it sounds like Yaakov becomes wealthy by simply manipulating the flock. Whereas over here, it sounds like the speckled and the spotted are a function of a miracle. God essentially telling Yaakov that I'm going to intervene on your behalf. I've seen what Laban has done. And whatever Laban decides, sounds like he's constantly switching around. This year, Akudim. Next six months, Nikudim. Next three months, Brudim. And whatever he would decide, says Yaakov, that's the way the animals would be born because of this intervention, because God is intervening on my behalf. And furthermore, God says to me, at this point in time, it's time to return. Because you're staying here any longer is not safe for you. Or, or, and God might say, you have secured your flocks, you have secured your wealth, so now you can return. And I think one, can, one assumes that Jacob's dream is not a fiction, he simply made it up. I, I don't assume that, largely because of what he says related to love, and you change my wages 10 times. Then, of course, we have to understand how one relates these two, these two stories, because they're certainly very different. And the classical commentaries uh, struggle with this question. Some think that basically what Yaakov is doing in the previous chapter is sort of acting out the person. We have, by the way, this is an interesting separate conversation, but we have in the Ramban an idea in a different context that the prophet who acts out the prophecy actually the prophecy, make sure that the prophecy will happen. That's the Ramban's understanding in general of why Abraham is walking through the land, what he calls Masa or that acting out the prophecy, and in acting out the prophecy, you ensure that the prophecy will take place. That's a very interesting concept in the Ramban. With bottom, the bottom line of the Ramban is actually a mystic. That's one possibility. So Yaakov is sort of acting out the prophecy, but at its core, it's God's intervention. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that they are sequential. That the previous chapter, Yaakov starts this way, starts with the speckled and the spotted with the manipulation of the flocks, and then Robin keeps changing the conditions, and then God steps in and supports Yaakov and intervenes on Yaakov's behalf. That's another possibility. So what I I would say is the following. If we assume that it actually took place, and one could argue that Yaakov simply makes it up, that's not my sense, but one could make that argument. However, what I would say is, even if it does take place, they're both true, but I would argue, present it in such a way that the reader can think that it didn't happen. In other words, what the Torah is interested in is over here, the narrator call it, the Torah. The narrator is interested perhaps in having us, the reader, at least wonder whether or not it really took place. That I think is because we have questions about Yaakov and those questions 
are reinforced by the story, not just the manipulation, but is he actually telling the truth or he's just convincing his wives to leave with him? They do agree to leave with him in the next few verses and they give their reason. Our father is no good for us. Our father never supported us. Our father uses us. Therefore, do whatever God says. That's their response. And their response, not necessarily the highest spiritual level, is simply basically responding to the way Yaakov presents it. Your father's a cheat. My God helps me financially. And, and God reminded me of a promise I made. I made a promise to return. And it's time to go now. And there's no reward in staying here. There's no point to stay here. At best, it's fruitless. And at worst, it's dangerous. So that's one way to read. The Torah perhaps wants us to consider the possibility that he didn't tell the truth. Now, I'm going to stop here for a moment and take comments or questions. Then I want to delve back into this text. I have several, uh, several points I'd like to make about uh, this text. Several suggestions about the text. And they are, I think, food for thought. Um, but if anybody has comments or questions at this point, I'll be happy to uh, entertain them. You can also um, type questions into the chat box, and I'm happy to read them out. Um, this goes also. Uh, Wendy, is that a hand? Wendy, uh, can you unmute yourself so that Okay, sorry. It seems to me, if we look at science or what we know now about genetics and so forth, that this dream that Yaakov uh, relates presents a, a kind of a true picture that he may have observed and other people may have observed at the time that if the fathers of the animals look a certain way, a bigger percentage of the babies will look like the fathers. And so that it's, when he recites the dream, uh, it's part of his, I figured out. How did people in those days think ideas came to them? It came because God gave them an idea. It was, I must, I dreamt it. Or it was something like that. That's how it's always seemed to me as I've read this particular episode. Right, I would say that. I would say that, of course, the science we would call it, yeah. previous chapter, name, the way it seems, what it seems to suggest is that if during the time of the mating they see certain things, that that has an effect upon the 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 uh, the animal that will be born, or it could be true of human beings as well. From our perspective today there is zero scientific evidence that that's the case. And in point of fact, if one takes the fundamentally, it's God's intervention, God's miraculous intervention. And Yaakov is doing is simply sort of acting it out in a way. That would solve that problem, those who have the problem, that the Chumash does not uh, really, uh, is not in line with our scientific knowledge of today that would, in effect, solve that problem because it's not about Yaakov really manipulating it. It's more about acting it out. Okay, that is certainly the case. Um, that would resolve that particular problem of the extent 
the Torah, the Bible in general, accords with what we now know today called science. And so in this thought that what they see during the mating affects the offspring was probably a common, uh, common, knowledge. common belief in many places. But nowadays, we, from our scientific perspective, it has zero uh, scientific uh, support. So that would actually, yeah, that could relate to that question. Is there anything, anybody else have something to say? That would jump it back into this text. And, yeah, uh, I would, I would I mean, it's, it, it seems to me that actually on the contrary, it's, it's, actually, it's actually a revelation to Yaakov and to us that although Yaakov thought that he was shamanistically able to manipulate the truth is revealed to him that actually the, the, the giving birth of the flock is the direct result of, of God's mating this female with a spiritual streaked one. So it will give birth to a streaked one or to a spiritual spotted one. So it will give birth to a spotted one. And it's actually from the intervention of the spiritual world with the females that the resultant flock results, not from his manipulation as he thought he was able to do. Okay, that's possible. It's possible that he's mistaken. It's only a possibility, but either, either way, it does solve this problem. For those who think it's a problem that the Torah does not accord with science, for the Rambam, it would be a problem because the Rambam believed that everything in the Torah has to be scientifically accurate, as he says clearly. And if it's not scientifically accurate, then we're simply misreading the Chumash. That's what the Rambam says in the guide quite clearly. But just briefly, um, just brief, briefly, because there are other occasions in the, in, the, in the Tanakh in which we are informed that the war is conducted by heaven directly, not by, not by any terrestrial forces. Right. So the question is how to read those particular stories. That's right. The stars in the heavens fought against Israel. What does that mean? That's the question. How does one take those kinds of statements in the Bible in general? Question. That's true. And it lends itself to more than possible interpretation. Let me go back here to the um, to this story, Yaakov's dream. There's several points here to be made about Yaakov's dream big and small. And let me begin by the following, first, first observation. First observation is that, yes? I'm sorry, I, I just didn't want to gloss over those few psukim um, without going back to one of your uh, favorite themes about comparing Yaakov's experience with Lavan to B'nai Israel's experience in Mitzrayim. I will, I, will, the, I, will, I, will, I will get back to that later. I'll okay. We're going to get back to that later. I haven't okay. glossed over it. Today. There are some very we'll key words in those verses. Yes, there are. That's, of course, true. And I 100%. I know what you have in mind. Hate them. Okay. Them, right? Okay. I, I know. Right. And it's true. And we'll get back to that. And there's okay. something else I have to say about it, which is interesting. Okay. Get there. In a few minutes, we'll get there. But Thank before you. that, there's Thank something you. else. We'll get there. Before that, the first, the, let's start with the first point. The story over here about Yaakov's dream. Yeah, he has the dream, okay? By the way, even if he doesn't have the dream, even if he doesn't have the dream, the fact that he says he has the dream is also significant, right? So even if he, but let's, he has the dream. But now we think about when he first leaves. When he first leaves to run away from home, 
he also has a dream. And actually the language of the two dreams have a certain similarity to them. Because the first dream, he goes to sleep. And in this dream, he sees the angels ascending and descending a staircase. God is above, Hashem needs to have a love. And then you have the covenantal promise and the promise of protection, I'll bring you back. And Yaakov responds, I will build God's house. That's 20 years ago when he first leaves home. He's dreaming of God's house. He's dreaming of angels that are olim v'yordim. And what dream does he have 20 years later after spending 20 years in the house of Lavan? Again, we have the theme of Olim, but here it's in his dream, Atudim Olim al The male goats are sending the female goats, the mating with the goats. So the same person who dreamt about angels 20 years earlier, Olim Biardim, after 20 years in the house of Lavan, his dreams are about the mating animals. The animals being, of course, his, his resources, his financial resources. So after 20 years in the house of love and his dreams are essentially dreams about Akudim, Nikudim, and uh, Brudim. And that says something about, one might say that's the reason Yaakov has to leave. If, these, if your dreams have become, if those have become your dreams, then that's problematic. By the way, there is, you know, when we have our, yeah, I'm in Israel uh, now, I actually got the last flight out from the States, the absolutely last flight out. Um, and uh, when before COVID, we ran programs up north. Some of the most impactful things Grisha ever ran. It was for men and women after army in Israel. And it was, we, were, we lived in Yemin Ord, which is a youth village up north, a wonderful place. And we, um, so we spent all that we were there, we, day and night, everybody was together for, two to three weeks. And it was very intense. There was a topic, a lot of Gemara, a lot of other things. And there was a big Hasidic element. One of them was Rav Nachman. We would have someone who would read some of the Rav Nachman stories, which are very, very rich and interesting. And he has a story that in my view, maybe, maybe at some point, not now, I'll get a hold of that story and read it because the story in my view as my interpretation is actually based on the story over here. The Rav Nachman story is based on Yaakov, and in particular, this, this story over here. And um, maybe someday we'll come back to that. Have, have you ever looked up at the heavens? That's what he says to this in the story. Rav Nachman says this this fellow. Have you looked up and see? Have you looked, looked up in the heavens? And um, here the point is, what kind of dreams? Because we judge people by the dreams. And by the way. The theme of going up and down, Olim not limited to chapter 28 when Yaakov first leaves and he dreams of the angels ascending and descending and the covenantal promise. But actually, the second time Yaakov leaves in chapter 46 from Beersheba, again, God speaks to Yaakov and God says to Yaakov, I am with you. I am says God. I will go down to you in Egypt. And I will. And not only that, the next time God speaks to anyone, which is Moshe in the burning bush, God said the same thing to Moshe. God instructs Moshe to go back to Egypt to bring the people out. 
And God said, I have gone down to save them from Mitzrayim and to bring them up. So appears both in 28, chapter 28 of Genesis, 46 of Genesis, the second time Yaakov goes back, and the burning bush, chapter 3 of Exodus. Those are three of the most significant moments. One could say those are the three most significant narrative moments in Genesis and in Exodus. Yaakov's first dream, Yaakov leaving home and dreaming about building the family, building the bayit. Yaakov going down to Egypt, the exile beginning, and the burning bush, the promise of redemption. In each of those three stories, it's Olim V'yordim. But in this one, it's Atudim Olim Aratzon. And what makes it even more striking, actually, is another word that appears over here. The angel speaks to Yaakov, and says to Yaakov, Yaakov, and Yaakov says, for Omar, in verse number 11, Hineni. We know that the word Hineni is a very significant word in the book of Breshit and the beginning of Shvot. You have in chapter, of course, at the Akedah, Avram says Hineni. You have it when Yaakov sends Yosef to meet his brothers, ends up in Mitzrayim. It's Hineni. You have when Yaakov is, goes down the second time to Egypt, beginning the exile. Yaakov, Yaakov, Bayomer Hineni in chapter 46. And of course, chapter 3, Moshe, Moshe, Bayomer Hineni, the burning bush. And once again, those are significant moments. And over here, it is a significant moment. Yaakov leaving exile is significant. But the whole context, the whole speech over here, the whole trying to convince them that it, it makes financial sense. Okay, but that's not the Akedah, and that's not the Sneh, and that's not Yaakov going down to Mitzrayim, and God's promise to bring him, to bring, to bring him back. So there's something very striking about this. That's the first point I would make. And it's sort of, we've seen this all along, and it speaks to the danger of why Yaakov actually has to leave. These are your dreams you have to leave. Because after all, how do we, how do we, if you want to understand a person, what's the first thing you say? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What are your goals? And we, we hear the answer, we get a sense of the person, at least what the person aspires to be. It's over here, it's the speckled and the spotted animals. So that's the first point I would make. And then let me come back to another point. Actually, Suri raised the question, uh, or it wasn't a question, she pointed out that the experience of Yaakov in the house of Laban is the experience of Israel in the land of Egypt. That is certainly true, and we'll get to that, if not this week, next week in space, but I did want to point out uh, a couple of points. Uh, Suri, do you want to tell us what you had in mind over here, apart from Avichem Hetobi and Paro, are you safe, Paro Hatel? What else did you and have the in heat, mind? The heat seal. The heat, the heat seal, seal is, of course, yes. Of course, that's accurate. And Benitzaltim at Mitzrayim, when Israel is commanded to take the gold and silver and the garments from, uh, from Egypt, and they're given them. And then later, of course, in the book of Shemot, that very gold and silver that they took, they made a golden calf with. So they have to strip themselves of the gold 
in contrast to Vinit Sautem. And of course, we have the Hato. Moshe said to Paro, I will save Paro Hateo, stop mocking us. And we have over here, Abichem Hato B. So that is true. You have something else in mind? Well, I mean, not necessarily in, this, in these verses, but we had the Avdus, which we come to later. We have the Inui, which we come to later. Yes, that we'll get to later on. Gavus Avdus and Inus, which is the key. That the experience of Israel and Egypt and the experience of Lavan, of Yaakov and the house of Lavan are actually identical. Identical, of course, there are some distinctions between them, but fundamentally they're the same. In other words, the point being then that, let me, let me get to the point. The experience of Yaakov, and the, which is what we care about, the experience of Yaakov and the house of Lavan. That's our concern. But there's also something else going on here, which is that one could also see it as a kind of punishment for Lavan. It's not just that Yaakov is being rewarded, it's that Lavan is being punished. Because after all, in the covenant, God said to Abraham, the nation which enslaves them, I will judge. So over here, one can see that Yaakov is benefiting. Right? That was, and that word rechush, by the way, which was the promise that Israel, they someday they will leave with a lot of rechush, that we have later on, just a few verses later, in verse number 18, that Yaakov took all of his flock and three times the Torah in verse number 18 as the word Reish Kaf Shin, Rechush. And of course, this is a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that three generations will suffer. Yaakov is the third generation, Abraham, Yisok, and Yaakov. And they'll live with a lot of Rechush. So Yaakov's staying on for these six years, okay, he suffered, but the fact of the matter is, he does live with a lot of push, but on the other side of it, it's also that Lavan is being punished. Lavan is, Lavan's flock has been silly not, uh, he hasn't accumulated wealth. If anything, it's depleted. So we can read it actually, we read it as, yes, Yaakov has benefited, but Lavan also has been punished, that God's intervention here is not just to help Yaakov, but on the other hand, it's to punish the mistreatment of Yaakov by Lavan, which is parallel to what we have in Mitzrayim. It's not just that God will take Israel out of Egypt, but, the, but Mitzrayim will be punished by virtue of these, of these plagues, of which there were 10. Later on, Yaakov will say to Lavan, you try to trick me 10 different times. You change my wages 10 times and God did not permit you to do it. So there are all kinds of interesting parallels between that experience in Egypt and the experience in the house of Lavan. Having said all of that, it in no way contradicts what we said earlier that was problematic over here is um, what Yaakov is, has, has become. And we'll see more of that. Okay. Now let me... Uh, could, I, could I just ask a, a different quick question? point about... Can I ask a quick question? I think you... Yes, go ahead. Maybe um, addressing it, but I just wanted to, you mentioned you would get back to speckled and spotted and straight and so on. So. Yes, I'm about to, yes, go ahead. That was it. <laughs> I just wanted to, it looked like you were moving on to something oh, yes, else. I'm so I'm back to that right now. Oh. 
Yes. So here's what's interesting, among other things. That gets all the details of it. There's something very curious here, which is in the previous story, when the Torah says the animals that Yaakov is entitled to, okay, he's entitled to, and back in chapter 30, there were three kinds of three kinds of animals. Yaakov said to Lavan in chapter 30, Yaakov says, the normal animals, what's normally, the normal colors are yours. However, Yaakov says, Haser Misham in verse number, was it 32? In verse 32, Hayom, Haser Misham, Nakod Right? So there it says, Nakod Actually, in fact, there are three different terms that, three terms for our purposes that the Torah uses in describing the animals that have spots or speckles or mottled or dappled. One is the word nakod, one is the word tagu, and then later in verse 35, we're told that Laban removes from the flock ha'akudim v'hatruim so there are three terms. There's akudim, there's tuluim, and there's nikudim. Those are the three. Akudim, nikudim, and tuluim. The word akudim, for example, we'll get to what it means in a moment, appears in the story seven times. I didn't check nikudim, probably also seven. But I did check tuluim, and as far as I can see, it appears six times. So akudim, nikudim, and tuluim. Now, what is curious, of course, is that in the dream sequence, we have a different word substitute for tuim. Instead of tuim, in the verses that we just read, in verse number 10, and again in verse number 12, it's akudim, nikudim, ubrudim. We have this very strange word, birudim, birudim, instead of tuim. So I did want to think about this idea of brudim. But before that, what is akudim, tuim, and nikudim? Tuguim is an interesting word. A tue is a, is a, is a young animal, right? Uh, a lamb, we call it tue, right? And a tue, the word talui, tuluim. Right with the text tuluim tolu. So we have that word, and actually in the Talmud as well, tuluei begadim. Tuluei begadim, matuei begadim, matuei begadim are garments that have patches. In other words, a garment is torn. A garment is torn, and on top of the torn garment, you put a patch. And that is called a, a, a something which is a, a matu'e bigodim. So the word tolu actually probably means a patch, something which is patched, patched over. That's the first word. In other words, the point about tolui, my point being that it's not just the color over here. But if you think about it as a patch, then what Yaakov was saying, not just, not just, the color, which is rare, 
but also the suggestion that the weaker ones or the ones with some kind of blemish or defect of sorts, or even the clay is a tender animal. So give me the, the tender ones, the weaker ones, etc. That's in terms of tluim. Now, in terms of akudim, the word akudim is a word that stands out for us, obviously, because we had the word akudim earlier. We call it the story of akedat yitzchak. So what does akudim suggest to us in the context over here? Apart from the fact that it suggests, once again, the contrast between the story over here, the hineni of chapter 31 and the hineni of chapter 22. The two couldn't be more remote from each other. But the word akudim, okay, uh, that which is akud is that which is tied down, that which can't move. And I was thinking about this. There is a place, twice appears in the book of Kings in chapter 12 of Malachim Bet, Beit Eked Haroim. It's the place. And I wonder whether it means the place where the shepherds tie down their animals. Like you, a horse, you have a horse, you tie the horse down, you want to do something, make sure the horse doesn't run away. And I was thinking in the context of Akudim, that which is tied down, but has that meaning. Once again, the animal that's not free to move, it's limited in a certain way. And I was thinking about this, you know, at the Akeda, if you think about being Akud as being tied down, then actually it relates very well to the story of the arcade because Yitzhak is akud by Yaakov Yitzhak Benal means he's tied down, he can't move. And then the animal that substitutes for Yitzhak, of course, is Ayo the Ram, which is Chazbasvach, which once again is 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 immobile, having been caught in the brush. And being caught in the brush means you're vulnerable. Normally an Ayo can be way up to 350 pounds. But it's nechaz basvach. Where is the seh? The seh can be small. Where is the lamb? Where is the sheep? But Yaakov, but Avram gets an ayol because it's nechaz. It's akud. And a nokade, by the way, in the book of the word nokade, is elsewhere in the Bible. And it means, it means that which is the story of Yeshua when the Gibeonites dress up as people coming from a faraway land. And look, they said, we have brought food. It is nikuda. It is, it is cr it's crumbly. It's weak. It's crumbly. So the word nikudim actually also carries with it a sense of weakness. What Yaakov is saying to Lord is not the colors, which are going to be few in number. But I'll take the weaker animals. And of course, of course, precisely the opposite happens because the Torah tells us that the Kishurim, the stronger ones, go to Yaakov, the Atufim go to uh, go to Lavan. So now I was wondering about something else. Now, Suri made the comment earlier that the story of Yaakov in the house of Lavan is the story of Israel in the land of Egypt. Many times, it's one of the key. Now, I've got that's exactly the name of my first book. Uh, um, say, Ramad, 
Ravan was worse than Paro, means they're basically in the same boat, they're similar. Ravan is more dangerous than Paro. Now I wonder something else, because when, ya when Yaakov relates the dream that he had in verse number 12, the angel said, lift up your eyes. That's another, by the way. So here is the um, Rabbi Silver. You were you yeah, you've been cutting out and Gurudim. Rabbi Silver, you've been cutting out. Could you repeat that last line? You, yes, I'll, I'll repeat. Yes, what I said is that here in verse number twelve, Yaakov's instructed to lift up his eyes, lift up his eyes and see all the he goats which are mating, and um, and. Uh, see that they are akudim, nikudim, ubrudim. So first of all, lift up your eyes and see is a term we found at the Akedah, actually. Avram lifts up his eyes twice at the Akedah. He sees from the distance, he sees the aisle, which will be the sacrificial replacement for Yitzchak. Here also, lift up your eyes, and what do you see? The mating animals, but akudim, nikudim, ubrudim. And what I wonder about, what I wonder about is this. Obviously, the word that jumps out of the page is the word brudim. It didn't appear at all in the previous chapter. There the word was tuim that appears over and over again. Here the word is brudim. So I wonder whether the word brudim is not, in fact, related to the word. The Rabbi word Silver, you've cut out again. Does there one other place in the Bible? In one place in the Bible, it appears only once in the Bible. Rabbi, we really can't. Hear. That many of us probably sorry to interrupt you, but we really are having a you hard can't time. Can you hear me? So we you can't. started to say that Birudin means, and then of course we missed what you said. Rabbi, okay, I this is just a function of being in Israel and the. Oh, right. But, but this is I'll a problem. It. So we just it's cannot hear. Um, okay, I'll repeat what I said about Birudin. Birudin is a word that appears one other place in the Bible, only once. It appears in the book of Zechariah, where there's a one of his visions is that there are four different chariots. The fourth chariot and a different colored animals. And the fourth chariot has 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 horses that are Brudim Amutsim. Brudim Amutsim. And um, um, Amutsim, the word um, Amitz or Amatz, Chazak Amatz means strong. Brudim is translated there as dappled, you know, again with spots or streaks or whatever. And I wonder actually, what I wonder about is whether Brudim carries with it the significance not just of color, but actually strength. I wonder about that, about Brudim being strength. And in point of fact, that the Torah went out of its way to turn Tzluim, which are patched up or torn things into Brudim. And I wonder whether this, the word Brudim, which is anomalous here actually, is not here for a reason, because the point over here is the word Brudim is the, the, the third description of the animals for I have seen what Lavan has done to you. 
And I wonder whether the Brudim over here is playing on the idea, it's not just because you've been mistreated, but I've seen what Lavan has done, so I'm gonna help you out, but I'm also gonna punish him with the Brudim. Because you do remember that the word Brudim, of course, has in it the word Barad. And actually the word Barad is not just one of the plagues against Paro. But if one studies the 10 plagues, one realizes immediately that the key plague, leaving out the 10th plague, the key plague is Barad. Is the Without seventh question, is the right. absolutely central plague. It's the seventh plague. It gets the most attention. It has the fire within, it's, 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 it's the revelation. It comes down with great force. It, it is very uh, directed towards those that don't fear God. Those that fear God are not plagued. So I wonder whether the choice of the word Gurudim is not intentional in the sense that what the Torah is doing here in effect, that it's not just parallel to the story of, of, of Israel and Egypt. Of course, it's parallel. But the Chumash, one might say, is even setting it up by including the strange word brudim, which is code, yes, but carries with it a sense of strength, of power, and of punishment. That in point of fact, what the Torah is saying is that two different things are happening over here. Yaakov is being protected. Yaakov is being delivered and given an opportunity to go home. But on the other hand, Lovin is being punished. There is a punishment to Lovin. God intervenes not just to save Yaakov, but as God said to Abraham, that's what I wonder about the word brudim. And the plague, of course, with the, with the Barat is, in fact, plague number seven, and it's the key plague. It's also the beginning of the last set, where God says, you will see there's none like me. And we do remember that Lavan himself is a menachesh. So Lavan has his own gods. Lavan has his trophim. So part of it, you can even read into the story, maybe it's overreading, that God's helping Yaakov is also a way to establish to Lavan, there's one God here, there's one all-powerful God, and everything else is secondary, including your trophim, including your nichlish, can't stand the test when you are faced with God's interventions, when God's anger, etc. That's what I wonder about the word brudim, the important point in terms of reading a text is we search for words that stand out. And here, given the fact that akudim, nekudim, and tzhuim are over and over again repeated in the previous chapter, when it's akudim, nekudim, and brudim, that is an invitation to interpret. But let me stop at this point and take comments or questions. Um, there's some good questions in chat. Um, just first one, I guess, from Gail Novetsky, who kind of jumped on caught on what you were about to say, she did mention, uh, she asked if there was a connection between Barad, the plague, and you certainly covered that. Oh yeah, I answered that question before yep. you, yep. that is, yes. I think, by the way, I'm, if you actually go back, we're not doing it now, but if you go back and look at the plague of Barad, you'll see what I mean, that that is actually the key plague. And by the way, I would add something else about Barad, on top of everything else that I mentioned, and there's more, it's also plague number seven. And we have to remember, this is also in my Haggadah that I wrote many years ago, but um, we have to remember that in the book of Psalms, which lists the plagues, 
in one of them, there's certainly seven plagues and not 10. And in the other one, it's not clear whether it's seven or seven plus one. But seven is a key number, of course, we know from in many, many areas of the Torah, um, Shabbos, Shemitah, etc. So the number seven is key. And when you look at the plagues, you see straight up that the seventh plague is the key plague, which is Barada, of course. So yes, I do think that the Torah here is sort of setting up, as it were, um, setting up for us, for, the, for us, the students, that when we get to the story of Israel in the land of Egypt, we're going to re- look back at the story of Yaakov in the house of Lavan. And of course, we'll get to it later in the chapter with the Geirut, the Abdut, and the Elu, which is key. But there are all kinds of parallels. But this uh, today, I want to draw our attention to seeing the story of Yaakov in the house of Lavan as not just in helping Yaakov, but also as a, a punishment is being visited upon Lavan for his misbehaviors. I think that's, that's the point I was pushing. Uh, what else? There's another question from um, Neva, Neva Goldstein asking, could Tilleen yes. be related to Leah? Yeah, it's a good question. I, it's a different word, it's with a tet. Um, it's with a tet. Uh, Leia, Leut, without the tet, does mean weariness. You have the word Tua'a in the Torah. Tough Lamed told Yitro about all the Tua'a they had encountered upon the way, but there it's with a tough. So I don't know the Tawu. I, I don't know. It's, I question whether it's related, etymologically related, grammatically related. Uh, I don't know about that, but it is interesting that, you know, you have, <laughs> Leia means two things. Leia means a cow, probably does mean that, and it also means weariness or weakness. And that's an important point, actually, that the same word can have two different meanings, both of which are significant. That the Midrashian pick up on this, that a name, for example, even when the Torah says she named him X because of this reason, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have other significances. I'll give you an example of that. Um, it's not directly related to your question about Leah. I don't think they're related etymologically. Well, let me give you an example of a name which has more than one meaning. The child born to Adam and Eve, child number three, after Cain kills Hevel. The Torah says that Eve had another child and she named the child Shait. Shait, for she said, Shatli Elohim God has given me another child, Tachat Hevel, in place of Hevel, whom Cain killed. So Shait, from the word Lihashit, which is to place or to give in that context. But the word Shait has actually another meaning, apart from being given something. Shatot, or in modern Hebrew, the word Tashtit. What is a Tashtit? A Tashtit is a foundation. So the point being that Shait is the foundation of the world because Noah is going to continue existence. Noah's line, Noah comes from Shait, not from Cain. Cain's line is, is not continuing. Hevel's dead. So the foundation of the world is Shait. The son of Shait is Enosh, which means human, a person. So Shait means foundation, the foundation of, of our existence. But that's not the reason that Chava explicitly calls him Shaykh. God has given me another. So that's a good example of an early on in the Torah.
where name is given, a reason the name is given. Uh, Rabbi Silver, as well, we should keep that in very important plugs. Uh, Rabbi Silver, you were cutting yes. in and out during that last sentence, during your during that last bit. Can you do you mind repeating yourself? Yeah, then. Yes. Anyway, we're having so much trouble today, but what I'm pointing out in the case of Shait is that even though it's explicit in the Torah that Chava says, I Shait yes. means God has given me, God has granted me, but obviously the word Shait could have another meaning, which is foundation. He is, in fact, the foundation of the world, and the word shape means foundation. In modern Hebrew, a tashtit is a foundation of a building, tashtit. So it's a good example of where a name carries with it more than one significance. And in terms of the name, in terms of Leah, it probably, it can mean a cow, which is, again, part of the possessions. Rachel comes with its own. Rachel's a sheep or a lamb. She comes with, with a flock. And the house of love is all about commodities. That's what Rachel and Leah said. He buys and sells us. Who needs him? He buys and sells us. He treats us like strangers. There's no family in his family. Everybody's a commodity. On the other hand, Leah also means weakness or weariness. And that's the surprise of Leah. The surprise of Leah is that the weary one is the one that produces all the children. And the one who's not weary produces initially does not produce any. So it's a lay is a good example of a name that carries with it at least two meanings, maybe there are others as well, and how they play into the story. So we always keep that in mind. Is there anything else? Uh, is it uh, is it possible? Um, uh, is it possible that uh, a also the Vrudim is a hint at uh, Yaakov's becoming stronger, um, that he starts off in, in the house of Lavan from a position of weakness, and that the whole story is the winnowing out of the Lavan within him, so that it's olim, uh, even in the, 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 in the midst of Lavan, he's getting stronger and is able to return. I don't see your face, but I hear your voice, Chaim, and I recognize it after many years. That's Chaim. Uh, I think that you made a very important point. I think that I was focusing on the negatives, that look at this man's dreams after 20 years. First, he dreams about angels. Now he dreams about cattle. And that's, I think, an important point. But you're making an important point also, which is, in point of fact, Yaakov's securing of wealth of his own personal fortune is important. For the Jews who leave Mitzrayim, it was important that they have their own uh, financial security, one might say. Look, the Torah says later in the book of Devarim, when you send the slave free, you have to give the slave gifts. Otherwise, the slave is simply a person that can't sustain him or herself. So the point is, it is a sign of freedom. And I would say more than that, the fact that in the case of Egypt, the Egyptians give them the, the, the wealth, the, the people give them, the friends give them, is a sign because the slave, slave mentality always measure, measures it by the master. When the master gives you the wealth, that's a sign that you're really free. So in the case of Lavan, I'm not saying Lavan did it willingly or willfully, he doesn't want to do it. He's a scoundrel and he doesn't want to do it. But in point of fact, he took Lovan's flocks 
And that is an important point that Yaakov goes back now uh, with some kind of standing. Okay, it's not necessarily the standing that's of the Torah because the Torah is more concerned about Yaakov's spiritual standing, his emotional spiritual standing. But we should not discount the fact, and I don't, so your point is very well taken, that it's also a strengthening of Yaakov, the fact that he's not a shepherd, the fact that he's not someone who has to rely upon the love, upon, you don't want to rely upon Lavan's favors, that's for sure. And the fact of the matter is, he has secured, through his own ingenuity, call it, um, his, uh, a sizable fortune. He's an independent person now. And that's, that's actually a very important point. So thank you for that insight. Um, okay, let's continue then. So, uh, David, um, I had one thought that you had brought out that all three of the types are the weak, um, uh, not uh, the best of the sheep. And that it seems that it's, it appears to me that Yaakov is trying to beat uh, Lavan at his own game. He's saying, you know what, I'll take the inferior type of sheep um, and that Lavan might be more likely to agree to that. And by doing so, he is trying to like con the con artist oh, for to sure. say, right. Um, and Lovin, and then it's only as that is occurring that Lovin realizes I've been duped, and then Lovin tries to backtrack on that. But right. that's why he picks that. And I, the other thought that I had was that with Akudim, that uh, Yaakov identifies with being tied down, with being the underdog, and um, that he's been. Um, the whole time when he wants to leave or, you know, he's been right. thwarted in every attempt that he's made this entire, uh, throughout this entire ordeal. Um, for sure, you, you see the story here, he has to convince his wives to leave. Leaving right. is not easy for him to leave, he's part of Robin's family. Right. Um, by the way, as we're talking, a thought, a thought went into my head, <laughs> you know? I wonder about something out of the sky. Rabbi Silver, you cut out again. Could you repeat that? Just, yes. I said, I thought about something now, which is out of the clear blue sky, as we uh, was talking, a verse that we find in the book of Shmuel. This is the, the famous chapter in Shmuel of the war against Amalek, which is chapter 15. King Saul was commanded by God to defeat and destroy Amalek, all of the Amalekites and all the animals. And Saul sets out to do that. And you have a very strange verse in towards the beginning. If you have your Tanakhs in Shmuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, let's see if I can find that here. Um, in verse number four, chapter Samuel, Samuel, chapter 15, verse 4. So here they saw the soul to hear. And he took a census. The generals count the troops before the war. 
So the trend. Rabbi Silber. Sorry, misspelled Tet, Lamed, Aleph, Yud. Yes. Sorry, you, you cut out both your screen and your audio had cut out. So right, I'll, say, I'll say it again. Um, I'll say it again. Saul counts, Saul counts the troops in a place called Tuaim. In verse number four, you see that? Verse number four, you have it over there? Yes, Saul mustered the troops and enrolled them at Tuaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. So the place where he counts the troops is called Tuaim. I always wondered about that. And now I have the following thought. Feel free to think that it's absurd. Uh, you don't have to tell me if you think so, but I'm wondering about Tuaim, because Tuaim is a place. But the word Tawul actually means a, a patched garment. And he, what I wonder about is, he starts fighting against Amalek with a patched garment. In other words, the place is called Tuaim. How does the story of Saul and Amalek end? How does it end? Remember? His garment is torn. His garment gets torn, exactly. At the end of the chapter, he's, Samuel's leaving Saul and he reaches for him and he tears, probably Saul tears Samuel's garment. And Shmuel says to Saul, God has torn the kingship away from you. So what I wonder about in the context of our study together this morning is I wonder what is the relationship between the patched garment in verse number four? Patched garment, patched garment, it's a torn garment that's patched over. That's what a toaima, but beggar that's toru is a torn garment, is a beggar korua, which is patched. And what I wonder about now in thinking about this, and there are many ways to think about it, what I wonder about is, and when you get to the book of Shmuel, of course, anything's possible because you're talking about a writer who's a genius writer. And what I wonder about is the following. I wonder whether the book isn't saying to us, my beloved reader, this chapter will define for us, make clear to us that Saul is not gonna make it. But you have to remember, he goes into this story already a compromised person. The garment's already torn. He was able to patch it over. But when you patch something over it, the torn garment, the smallest thing can actually destroy the, can destroy the garment. It's easy to tear again. And the fact is, that is true about Saul. And the point being that it's not just this one story. What the, what the, what perhaps what the book is suggesting is that Saul enters into the story already in many ways is compromised for any number of reasons. And he tears in, in Shmuel's the, uh, uh, coat also later, you know. Shmuel's coat is torn. It's probably right. Shmuel's coat that's torn. In the in the in the uh, book that I wrote with Bencio Novadia, it's called. Uh, it's written in Hebrew. It's called Malchut Adam. It arrived in the United States. Uh, I think it was uh, Friday. Um, I talk about the torn coat. Why is Shmuel's torn coat the symbol of Saul's downfall? That's an interesting question. But my point is that you. I'm wondering now whether it's a place. 
But we know the places have meaning. And I wonder whether Tzuaim in the story of Amoeg should not be read in conjunction with Beged Korua, Yikorea, the torn garment at the end of the chapter. When you read them together, of course, it invites us to speculate what it, what it means. I suggest perhaps it means that it's already torn, or it's almost already torn. It doesn't take that much for Saul to fall because he's on the cusp of failure for any number of reasons. Part of it is his own fault and part of it is Samuel's fault. Yeah. In my book, I suggest that the bulk of it is actually Samuel's fault. That's a different conversation. I just wanted to point to the word Tzra'im in the book of Shmuel. Okay. David, can I suggest, yes. can I suggest something? It's Sandra. Um, so you, you, have, you also have continuing in your, in your thesis that uh, the stories uh, echo one another. And uh, uh, we also have weak versus strong animals, whether or not the, the word dal is used in the Lavan story, and uh, we're talking about the, the Talu and the, and the other three keywords, um, or whether the word Dal in Mitzrayim, but we're look, talking about, and also now in Samuel chapter 15, we also are dealing with animals uh, that are, that are uh, spared animals that are uh, 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 used as a, as a kind of foil uh, for the story. So um, the connection continues even on another level. And also, um, that's a very good point. And, and also, David, aren't are the daughters saying when they say right away when when um, when Jacob, uh, I'm going to say it, herds them into the field because as now yes. you've said, we've got a cow and we've got a, a ewe lamb. Um, are they also saying since uh, Lavan is going to accuse him um, uh, with vigor and anger, you've stolen? Uh, everything that's mine, he he is he is in fact saying exactly what the daughter's saying. I'm just wondering if they really realize that he looks upon them as cattle, because if they are if they are a Rachel, a Yulam, and if they are a cow, a Leah, and if in fact Jacob has taken um, uh, the best of Lavan's um, uh, um, son over the last. What, how many years that he's been manipulating their their reproduction. So isn't it all of a one? I think that's true. I think that, look, I think what they say, what they say, let me, let me say two things. First of all, that your point about the animals is very interesting because it's true that in the story of Amalek, they spare the strong animals and they slaughter the weak animals. So yeah. Again, yep. you have the strong and the weak animals in that story. I wonder... It fits in very nicely. We have to think more about it, but it fits in nicely with this in business in the beginning and the torn at the end. Yes. It's funny, I've, I've, I've read that story a thousand times and I've torn it many times. I never thought well, of Tla'in before. I thought of it, but David. It's always, always something new. Suggested it, so you have to take the credit for that too. But let me, let, me, let, me, let me say something else and I'll conclude today with this, which is the following. The response of the wives, Rachel, and they say, Listen, do we have any portion in our father's house? Right. Like strangers. We ate up all our money. So therefore, all that God has seal, all that God has provided for you is yours. And do and, and and therefore do whatever God tells you to do, which is to go back and fulfill your vow. So their response, I would say, is not on the highest spiritual level. What they're saying is, look, you want the, the money's ours. So therefore, why should we stay here? The vow, go ahead, fulfill your vow. But I think the point is that their response is not on the highest spiritual level. And the reason for that is very simple. 
that Yaakov didn't present it on the highest spiritual level. He presented his chalom and hineni as atudim morim aratzon. He, he, he focuses largely on the being cheated by a scoundrel and that God has enabled him to accumulate wealth uh, despite Lavan's, their father's attempts to mock him and to cheat him. So they respond the same way. And I would just conclude by saying, and I think about this a lot, in terms of being a teacher, which essentially is how I see myself. I think that all teachers, well, you, you set a certain tone. We try to set a tone and you try to create a kind of, a, a, a kind of language by example, hopefully. And then you hope that everybody who's engaged in, in together picks up a kind of speech that is, that is, you know, invited here. And I think that's part of teaching. I think what Yaakov has done over here, and I think it's a failure, he spoke to them on a certain level and they respond on that level. Your father's stealing my money. So I'm getting out of here. You know, I made a vow back home. And the angel said, listen, I, you know what's going on. Go back and time to fulfill your vow. And the response is exactly that. He's a cheat, treats us like garbage. He manipulates us. We're just strangers. The money is ours. Do whatever God tells you to do. But that's, I don't think we should indict them for saying that. They're responding to what they to what they hear. And I think that's part of entering into a dialogue. You set a certain level and you hope that the respondents will respond and typically do respond on that level. And Yaakov has done over here, unfortunately, I think has set it up the bar very low, way too low. And maybe he feels he has no choice, but in point of fact, that's what he's done and that's their response. We'll continue with this next week, uh, hopefully. I hope the internet is a little better than it is here. But um, in any event, Thank you again for participating. And if you have more questions, you can send me an email at desoberatrisha.org. I'm here in Israel for another three and a half weeks. I'm here with the yeshiva that we started in, it's now in Kfaritz at, at Sion. I'm there to go there, do a little teaching, see what's going on, other Israeli projects, hopefully. So hope to be back uh, in the beginning of January. Meanwhile, we have two weeks to learn and there are other opportunities. So again, have, uh, you can send me at the email and I'll, I'll, I'll respond.